you'll open your Bibles, we are going to be continuing this morning in our series, B.C., the history of redemption. We will be in Joshua chapter 5. To the kiddos, my apologies that Ms. Bailey is out of town. Uh, She always starts this a lot more fun than I do. Um, So Joshua chapter 5 is where we will be this morning, starting in verse 13, and we'll go through verse 15. And it says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. These are the words of God. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would be with us now, writing it on, uh, on our hearts, on our minds, that it might also uh, pour forth from our lips. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is always good to be with you. Uh, I don't get to be up here very much, so this is exciting for me. Uh, for those joining online, your presence is missed, and we look forward to when we can all be together again. Whether you are new with us or, uh, or if you've been with us throughout this whole series, uh, it's important for you to know that our series is aimed at one thing. The aim of this series is worship. We want to worship God by seeing the redemption that He offers in Jesus Christ and how He has been telling that story over and over again throughout history. History is very important to God. Repeatedly in the Bible, God tells His people to remember their history. He says, remember what He's done for them. Remember where they came from. Uh, When I was a preteen child, I often talked on the phone a lot. Um, I imagine many of you all did too. Uh, I thought I was very cool talking to my friends. Um, If I could give you a piece of advice, if if one day you will have preteen children, don't let them do that. Uh, it's, it's a bad idea. Those, those calls were very formative for me, but the reason uh, was because I was unaccountable for them. So they were formative in the wrong way. Um, that all changed one day for me uh, when I got a phone call and uh, I answered it. And this was pre-cell phone, so uh, I, I answered it on the house phone and the answering machine picked up right at the same time. And if you remember the way that would work, uh, the machine would not cut off, it would start recording your conversation. And so I had my conversation and afterward, I hung up, I went downstairs and I suddenly heard my voice coming from the kitchen. My mother had gotten home and saw there was a new message, and so she pressed play, and she was standing there in the kitchen washing dishes and listening to my conversation. Uh, As you might guess, I was horrified. I rushed into the kitchen to stop the machine and gave her this look of, why would you do this to me? (laughs) Uh, And to be honest with you, I don't remember what I said in that conversation and why I was so horrified by her listening to it, but I do remember what she said to me. She didn't address anything that she heard. She just looked at me and said, Andrew, don't forget who you are. And it has stuck with me to this day. I knew exactly what she meant. Well, God told his people the same things many times. Remember who you are. 
Remember what I've done for you. Remember where you've come from. God wants us to remember. Primarily, he wants us to remember what he has done in history so that we won't walk away from it. At a time like this, when we are all in a season that we've never been in before, when the brokenness of the world is so evident to us, when we feel the weight of what's going on in our country, um, it's during these times that we also start to recognize our own brokenness. We feel the weight of it too. So we feel the brokenness out there, we feel the brokenness in here, and it tempts us to doubt. It tempts us to walk away, to forget what God has done. And when that happens, when we forget, we don't just walk away from the history of redemption, we actually walk away from the Redeemer Himself. God wants us to understand uh, that His aim throughout history has been to redeem. He wants us to be close to Him. Throughout the Bible and throughout this series, we've seen that since the fall, God's aim has been to save the world, to redeem the world by destroying sin and populating the world with images of Himself. Redemption looks like a world without sin and full of the children of God walking in fellowship with Him. This is what God has promised. God promised this in Genesis 3 when he told the woman a seed of hers would come and crush the head of the serpent. That was how he was going to deal with sin. He promised Abraham descendants that would outnumber the stars. Lots of children. He promised Jacob, who was Israel, a land, and he keeps his promises. When Israel was enslaved in Egypt, what did God do? He went after them. He got them out, and he brought them to the promised land. God has been on this mission of redemption, and every verse of the Bible reaffirms that mission and tells us a little bit more about it. And today in our text that we read, uh, we saw what happened right before God's people made their first military push into this promised land. So verse 13 uh, tells us that Joshua was by Jericho. It says he was alone. Uh, We don't know what he was doing there. But he looks up, he sees a man with a sword in his hand. And I don't know about you, but if that were me, if I encountered somebody with a drawn sword in their hand, I would have very quickly turned and run the other way. But not Joshua. Joshua was a warrior. He was not about to turn and run away from Jericho over one man. And so he goes right up to the man, and he asks him a very reasonable question. He understood that the man's sword was a declaration of war. It meant he was ready for a fight. And so Joshua asks, who's that sword for? Whose side are you on? Verse 14 says, the man said no. And he tells Joshua who he is, the commander of the army of the Lord. Joshua responds by falling on his face, submitting himself to the man. And then verse 15, the man gives Joshua a command to remove his sandals, and Joshua does it. So think about this. Joshua is leading this army. The the invasion of the promised land is beginning. And Joshua's first military act is to surrender. He bows down. He bends the knee. How does that make sense? Let's invade the land, and we're going to start by raising the white flag. Why does he do this? Joshua realized something in this moment that I think all of us know instinctively. It's that God has a side. 
God takes a side. Joshua didn't know who he was talking to, and so he asked him, whose side are you on? And the man kind of helped Joshua reorient his thinking. He, he wanted him to think a little bit bigger, and so he explained who he was, and in a sense, he kind of turned the question back around on Joshua. Joshua asked him, whose side are you on? And his response was, I come from God. Whose side are you on? Everybody believes that God takes sides. This is why even today we hear pseudo-religious language surrounding people and causes. People say things like, God is on the side of this person or this candidate, this organization, this movement. Someone once told Abraham Lincoln that God was on his side. And his response was very good. I think he must have been reading Joshua at the time because he said, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Yes, God takes a side, but the commander of the army of the Lord makes it very clear whose side God is on. God is on God's side. He had not come to join Joshua's side. He had come to invite Joshua to, to join God's side. And that's what we need to get from today. Redemption is not about God coming to join our side. It's about God inviting us to join his side. So what does it mean to be on God's side? Well, we're going to look at a couple of key features of the text to help us grasp that. Uh, the things that we need to further understand here are the man, the command, and the sword. The man here identifies himself as the commander of the Lord's army. And we are clued in that this is not an ordinary man. Uh, this uh, event is understood by theologians as a Christophany, which just means an appearing of Jesus before he had become human. Part of why we know this wasn't uh, an ordinary man or an angel is because he received Joshua's worship. Angels didn't receive worship. They would reject it. When people would bow down to them, they would tell them to get up. This man receives Joshua's worship. So the man is the commander of the army, but we should also understand him to be Jesus. Something else that tips us off is the man's title. He says he's the commander of the army of the Lord. But, again, Joshua was the one leading the people. He was the one leading Israel, who were God's chosen people. Joshua understood himself to be leading the Lord's army. And yet this man arrives and says, I'm the commander. I'm here now. And Joshua understood that though he himself was a commander, this man in front of him still outranked him. And so he says, I'm your servant. He bows down, he surrenders, he submits, he offers his allegiance to the man, and he says, what are your instructions? Again, what we need to see here is that Joshua very quickly understood that this commander had not come to join him. This commander was inviting Joshua to join him. And so Joshua surrenders. Uh, surrendering was, uh, was not Joshua's way of abandoning his mission, but it was him understanding that this is how he would fulfill his mission. Joshua surrendered to God in order to join him. By surrendering to the commander, Joshua was saying, you are my commander. Uh, you, you are the commander of this army. Joshua surrendered to join God's side, to join God's story of redemption. Going on, Joshua asks the man what he should do. And the man gives him instructions, and they were really quite striking. He commands Joshua to take off his sandals because where he was standing was holy. Now, this is a God move. You know, perhaps Joshua was thinking, oh, well, this commander will provide some kind of battle strategy. 
But no, he just says, take off your sandals, and Joshua did it. Joshua's obedience means that he understood who he was talking to. He understood he was speaking to God. When God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, he told Moses the exact same thing, take off your sandals. Only God calls people to worship this way. Now, this command should tell us a couple of things. Number one, it should tell us that God was going to be with Joshua as he had been with Moses. Moses had died in the wilderness, and Joshua took his place, and this call is a confirmation of that. And number two, it tells us that surrendering to God doesn't look like defeat. It looks like worship. Right, right before this scene, Joshua led the people of Israel through the Jordan River. God had parted the waters just like he had at the Red Sea, and the first thing Israel did when they came through the water was set up an altar to worship. After that, the whole generation uh, there was circumcised as a picture of how God was separating them from Egypt. And the first thing they did after that was worship. They kept the Passover where they remembered that they were redeemed from Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. And here, Joshua is preparing for the conquest of the promised land, and the, the, the one that mustered his army suddenly arrives. This kind of effect is still seen today. Uh, this is why presidents and kings and generals and famous music musicians go to visit their troops overseas. It's a reminder to them of why they're fighting or what they're fighting for. Joshua was preparing for a fight, and his general appears. Heaven's general appears, and Joshua worships. Joshua understood that what he needed in that moment was not a battle plan. Israel's victory had just arrived in the commander's sword. What Joshua needed to do was get on his face and worship. For us to grasp the history of redemption, we must see that the worship of the Redeemer is central. Joshua had been worshiping all along, and now he has come in contact with the one whom he has been worshiping. Joshua here understands that this commander was the one who redeemed Israel from Egypt, who had redeemed them in the wilderness, and who would redeem them in their conquest of the promised land. So how does this redemption work? How does it happen? Well, that's the third thing we need to look at. We need to see, uh, we, we have seen the man who is the Lord Jesus. We've seen his command. And now let's look at the third element, the sword. God is seen here carrying a sword. And again, Joshua understood that the drawn sword was a declaration of war. He was going to fight someone. Now, we may not be fond of the idea of God carrying a sword. We may not be fond of the idea of God actually fighting with it. But Church, this is the story of redemption. God has a side. It's his own side, and he is inviting people to join it. But what's the instrument for winning? How does he do it? How does he achieve his victory? The answer is a sword. And for those on God's side, it is a sword of protection. But for those who fight against him, it is a sword of judgment and wrath. This is particularly important for us today because we need to understand how God saves. There is a growing belief that claims that God cannot work this way, that he does not work this way. This is a heresy, and it's described as de-wrathing God. De-wrathing God. It's like declawing a cat. Uh, you know, we don't like those parts. They could hurt us, so let's just take them off. And this is a claim that God actually has no wrath at all. But Christian, 
we must understand if God has no wrath, he has no love. God is love, and he hates everything that is antithetical to his love. God is not wrath, but he does have wrath. To de-wrath God would be to disarm God, to de-sword God. And with no sword, there is no bite to his command, and there is no victory. Think of it this way. If a man were walking down the street with his child, and a kidnapper came upon them to snatch the child, and the man did nothing to prevent it, it would be right to say that that man was not acting in love for his child. But if a man were walking down the street with his child and a kidnapper came upon them, it would be right for that man's anger to flash and to cause the kidnapper to, at the very least, limp away with his tail between his legs. The man loves his child, and his anger will flare when someone tries to do that child harm. That is not a bad response. That is a godly response. God loves his children. So we can no more de-wrath God than we could change the tiger's stripes. God is what he is, and we do not have authority to change him. And so our text is clear. God has a sword, but we need to know how he uses it. What does this sword mean in terms of redemption? God's aim, again, is to redeem the world. And his sword is necessary for that because sin requires blood. Someone has to pay for the brokenness of the world. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And for that, God, our just judge, carries a sword. And God will draw his sword wherever he has to, and he can either draw it for people or at people. He can draw his sword for us or at us. And that was Joshua's question. Who's your sword drawn for? Is that for us or for them? And the angel answers, it's God's sword. And so Joshua bows. Joshua was not wanting to fight that battle. He was not going to fight against that sword. Now, this was a very crucial lesson for Israel. It's a very crucial lesson for us. Because if you remember... This was not Israel's first time to the promised land. This is round two. Back in the book of Numbers, in chapters 13 and 14, Moses led the people to the promised land. And he sent spies in to scope out the land. And when the spies came back to the camp, what did they say? They said, the land is exactly what we were hoping for. It's perfect. It's flowing with milk and honey, just like God said. And here's some of the fruit that we brought back. It's excellent. However... The inhabitants of the land, they're not so excellent. They are giants, and they're everywhere. We are like grasshoppers to them. We can't go in there. We can't defeat them. And Joshua warned the people at that time, don't rebel against God. If God is with us, we can most certainly take the land. But what do the people do? They do rebel. They say no, and they take up stones to stone Moses and Joshua. And they say, let's pick a new leader to take us back to Egypt. They'd rather be back in Egypt as slaves than trust God who sends plagues, the God who parts seas, the God who pours water from rocks, and the God who makes bread fall from skies. They'd rather go back to Egypt. And God, as you can imagine, was angry at these rebels who were getting ready to stone his children, to stone those who were being faithful. And so he does what a good dad does. He shows up with authority. He shows up in great glory and essentially says to them, now you're in for it. You don't want to go into the land? Fine. Guess what? You're not going to. 
As a matter of fact, you're all going to go out back into the wilderness, and this whole generation is going to die there. That's a scary picture. It's a scary picture, and we actually, though, are all probably familiar with a version of it. Parents do this to their kids. They're not violent with their kids. Uh, but when a kid fusses, you know, maybe they really want to watch something on TV or they really want a certain snack, and they, they fuss and they fuss about it, and the parent says, no, we're not going to do that, and the kid just doesn't get it, and they just continue to fuss and fuss and fuss, and eventually the parent says, okay, not only are you not going to watch that, we're not going to watch anything all week. Not only do you not get that snack today, we're done snacking all day, right? And usually the kid then does one of two things. Uh, they either fuss harder, which means they're still not getting the message, uh, or uh, they very quickly try to shape up and say, okay, okay, whatever you say, right? And that's also a bad response because they're still not accepting what you have said. <laughs> they're wanting to renegotiate the terms at that point. And Israel does this too. God says, here's your punishment. You're back out into the wilderness. And Israel tr quickly tries to shape up and say, okay, no, no, you're right. You're right, Lord. Let's, uh, let's get our weapons and let's go to fight. And Moses warns them and he says, don't you dare. Don't you dare. God will not be with you in that. You will only make this worse. But that's exactly what they do. They get their weapons, they try to go fight, and they lose. And then they still have to go back out into the wilderness and wander until that whole generation died. They wandered the wilderness for 40 years. Now, God had told Joshua that he would get to enter the promised land because he was faithful. And now Joshua is finally back. He's been waiting 40 years for this moment, and so when he encounters a scary man in the land, he was not going to make the same mistake that Israel made before. He was going to go right up to that man and question him. That's what he does. And when, what he displays in this moment is that it's more important to bow to God, to join God's side, than to bow to the giants of Canaan. He remembered God's wrath carried out in the wilderness. He remembered God's wrath carried out against Egypt. And when confronted here with the sword of God's wrath, he bows. Again, he wasn't going to fight that battle. Now, the church today, we don't like to talk about the wrath of God. Too often we believe that we just need to tell people that God loves them. Well, it's true. We do need to tell people that. I tell my kids that every day. But I had a conversation with someone once who asked me, if people are God's children then why is Jesus so special? Well, the answer to that question is people in their natural state are not God's children. They are his enemies who deserve the full weight of his sword to crash down on them. Again, it's right to tell people God loves you, but we shouldn't leave it at that. It's too easy to just say that, to let people be content in their rebellion because they think either God doesn't care or he loves them, so he's happy with whatever they do. But church, who do you think believes that their father loves them more? The child whose father did nothing to prevent their kidnapping or the child whose father fought like crazy against the kidnapper? Well, obviously the child whose father fought for them. And it's important for us to understand that God loves us. But we have to know what that love looks like, how he loves us. We have to understand that God's sword is the instrument by which he protects his love. And that is a good thing. 
Yes, it's a scary thing, but it's a good thing. It's a good thing in the same way that it's good for a father to protect his family. But it's scary because just like in the case of Egypt and the Israelites in the wilderness and in the case of Jericho, we know that some people will be on the receiving end of God's sword. This is what the commander revealed to Joshua. The question is not whether God is for or against us. It is are we for or against him? That will tell us whether God's sword is directed for us or at us, whether it's drawn for us or at us. Now, to get a better picture of how God uses his sword, what it looks like for God to draw it for people or at people, I want to look at two more texts. The first text is Revelation 19. And in that chapter, uh, we read starting in verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords." That chapter finishes with a call to the birds of the air to come and gorge themselves on the carcasses of those whom he had just slain. Again, it's hard to see God this way. We don't talk about it much. But we must understand that this is how his wrath is carried out against his enemies. This is the role that the sword of God's wrath plays in the history of redemption. So I was uh, thinking about this um, do you remember the movie The Patriot? It's been 20 years, um, but it's a pretty decent movie. Uh, there's a scene in that movie where the main character is a guy named Benjamin Martin, and the, the movie's set during the American War for Independence. Um, and there's a scene where uh, Martin was uh, not in favor of going to war against England. His son was. And so his son joins the Continental Army and gets captured. And through a series of events, he actually got captured right in front of his father. And so his father is doing what he can to prevent him from being captured, reasoning with these officials because he was just a messenger. He wasn't fighting. But the soldiers capturing him still say, we are going to take your son and we are going to hang him. And in that moment, Benjamin Martin suddenly decided it was time to go to war. And so he does what a good father does. He grabs his weapons and he follows this regiment of British troops and uh, positions his rifles very uh, strategically uh, and he goes to work. And what is just amazing, uh, the scene is just really well done, but he, uh, he almost single-handedly takes out this entire uh, regiment of British troops, right? And when he uh, gets done with all the shots in his rifles, he goes at them with a knife and a tomahawk. And by the end of the scene, he does rescue his son, and two of his sons had also uh, followed him. Uh, but by the end of the scene, uh, he gets up and he looks back at his sons. It's this great slow-mo shot. And he's just covered in blood, just drenched. It is dripping from his face. 
And he looks back at his kids who are standing there, and their clothes are all very nice and bright and clean. And there's this amazing contrast that happens. Well, look at what happens uh, in this passage in Revelation 19. Whose robe is bloody? Well, it's the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes with his sword, whose robe has been dipped in blood, and it's the people following him who are dressed in pure, white, clean linen. That's what it's like for God to draw his sword at us. He fights, and it is a terrifying image. And the birds of the air come and feast afterward. People say you can't pay for your sins. Well, actually, the reality is, yes, you can. It's called hell. It's called facing the wrath of God. But church, what does it look like for God to draw his sword for us? We need to look at another text for that. Isaiah 52 says, speaking prophetically of Jesus, it says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And a few verses later, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. When God swings his sword for us, he still has to swing it at someone. Sin requires blood, and though we all had gone astray, God decreed that the sword should not fall on us but should fall on his beloved son. Church, Jesus' Hebrew name is Joshua, Yeshua. And when our Joshua sought to bring his people into the eternal promised land of God, he also had to bow underneath the sword of God's wrath. But in that instance, the sword was not swung at God's enemies. It was not swung at us. It fell instead on our Joshua, on Christ, Christ who was scourged beyond human recognition. He was mocked and spat on and beaten, and he was nailed to a cross to die. The sword of God's wrath never fell so hard as it did on the cross. And so the option we have is to have uh, God's sword fall on us like is described in Revelation 19, or to have it fall on Christ. Christ stepped into our place. He endured the weight of God's wrath carried out at the hands of traitors. 
God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. The sword fell on him and church. It had to happen that way. The law demanded blood. It demanded payment for sin. Now, the law would have been satisfied with your blood and my blood. But God's plan of redemption would not have been satisfied that way. Remember, God's aim is to fill the earth, not wipe it out. Jesus came to save the world, not destroy it. The sword is vital in the history of redemption, and God decreed that it should fall upon his son, whose death did satisfy the law of justice, but it also shattered the law of death. Death is the penalty for sin, and as we saw in Isaiah, Jesus had no sin. And so when death swallowed him, it had no choice but to do what the fish did to Jonah. It had to spit him back out. Jesus came out of the grave alive, which is why we can be saved. God's plan to fill the earth with his image is happening by faith in Jesus Christ, the wrath we deserved, the wrath you deserved. The, the death you should have received, the, the, the payment that you owed, that we all owed, it's already been made, and it's been put in the grave. Christ made the payment. He left it in the grave, but he came out of it alive. Our debt has been paid. That is why after we die, we go to heaven. We go to be with the Lord until the time that death also spits us back out. Our bodies will temporarily be held in death while our souls live with God. And one day when Christ returns and death is forever defeated, your body will also be released from its grip and you will live. So church, let me ask you again. Who is more convinced of their father's love, the one whose father does nothing to get them back or the one whose father paid everything to get them back? God paid everything He paid with the life of his son to get you back. Now, as if this weren't enough, hear this. Joshua, he, again, was invited to join God's side. That's our invitation to. We are invited to join God's side. And the apostle Paul tells us what happens when we do that. In Romans 8, Paul writes, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if God is for us, Who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Church, in Christ, God is for you. His promise of redemption is for you, and he keeps his promise. That's why it's not sufficient to just say God loves you. People need to understand that God loves them in Christ, to the extent of Christ, to the extent of his son on a cross. Going on in Romans 8, verse 35, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Do you have any sword to fear anymore? The sharpest and most accurate, most deadly sword has already fallen, and it has fallen for you. In verse 37 says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things we are still winning an overwhelming victory. Joshua was concerned with conquering Jericho, and Paul is telling us that in Christ there is nothing we haven't conquered. We have already won. Our Joshua, Jesus Christ, bowed under 
the weight of God's sword, and because of that, we share in an eternal victory. We are participants in his story of redemption. We have joined the side of the Redeemer. City Church, the sword of God's wrath, it's not optional for salvation. God's plan of redemption hinges on his sword. God wields the sword because he hates sin. And so let me encourage you, do not make friends with sin. Do not have any peace with sin. During this season when everything is so different for us, when we're stuck at home, when our jobs have likely changed, when we're lonely, when we are despairing, sin is creeping at our door. While our nation is so divided, sin is lurking there too. It's seeking to capture you, to have you seeking to divide you from your family or your community. It's seeking to isolate you. Do not make friends with it. Paul says nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Well, church, that also includes sickness. God is not afraid of COVID. It serves him. And so we don't have to serve fear. All sin, all brokenness, again, it is trying to capture us. And when it comes knocking, what should we do? We should call out to our Father for his sword. Call upon God who is for us and ask him to fight. Psalm 35 says, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and the javelin against my pursuers and say to my soul, I am your salvation. God will fight for you, church. So don't make peace with sin. Be like Joshua. Get on your face before him, and he will rise up like a good father coming to protect his child. If you are in Christ, God has drawn his sword, and it has fallen for you. He is your salvation. You have joined the side of the Redeemer. You've joined his side in the story of redemption. If you are outside of Christ... Or if you are heading that direction, let me warn you that God's wrath is real. But you also don't have to bear it. Jesus Christ can set you free from that burden. You can be forgiven. You can join the side of the Redeemer. God is more able to pour out forgiveness than we are able to sin. All we have to do is be like Joshua. Bend the knee. Surrender to God. And he will lead us in eternal victory in God's promised land. God's plan of redemption has always been the same from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus Christ, the commander of the army of the Lord, draws his sword against his enemies. But he is also the one who is willing to succumb to that sword in order to make his enemies his friends. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. Thank you that when we uh, were your enemies, you still were willing to pour out love onto us by not letting your sword fall on us, though we deserved it. Your love passed over many sins until the right time when that sword should fall, and you had it fall on our beloved Savior. You had it fall on our Joshua, who was willing is willing to bend under your sword, to bend the knee, and to receive whatever you had for him. And Lord, you, your word says it was your will to crush him. Thank you for satisfying your wrath in him and not on us. Lord, you have given us 
innumerable reasons to, to worship you. Not only have you been willing to turn your sword away from us, to draw it for us, for our protection, but you have been willing to welcome us into your very own house, to call us your children, brothers and sisters of Christ, to be your very own friends. pray again that this message will sink deep into our hearts, that we would understand why you have a sword and that it is for our good. It is to protect your love. Lord, be with us now as we respond to this reality Uh, with our voices. uh, May we be drawn up to worship you. We pray this in Christ's name.